0: We continue in our series from Mark's Gospel. If you will, Uh, open your pew Bible to page 994. We're in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9, 994 in your ESV pew Bible. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. For 233 years, Americans have, to varying degrees, put their hopes in presidents, In those 233 years, there have been 59 uh, inaugural ceremonies that have gone well and have gone poorly. For example, in 1829, when Andrew Jackson was inaugurated, 20,000 people showed up in celebration, and the whole thing turned into a brawl. And uh, President Jackson had to himself jump out of a window uh, to escape all of the mayhem. In 1873, when Ulysses S. Grant took office, his inauguration day was so cold that ambulances were waiting alongside the parade route to uh, take military cadets in and treat them for frostbite. In 1865, at uh, Lincoln's second inauguration, Vice President Andrew Johnson uh, had some medicinal whiskeys to calm his nerves, which just led to him slurring his speech and rambling on incoherently for 20 minutes. And President Lincoln closed his eyes during the whole thing. So why do I share these stories with you? Clearly not to engage you in any sort of laughter, uh, as we've clearly not done, (laughs) it's to point out that whether an inauguration day has lots of problems, it's a total disaster, or it goes off without any hitch, all of these men failed to live up to whatever standard or expectation was placed on them. None of these presidents, and we can stretch this beyond just American history and and U.S. presidents. This can go around the world, across history. No leader, no matter how prestigious or anticipated or expected, fulfilled their role perfectly except for one. And this morning we read about his inauguration. His name is Joseph Biden. I figured that would be okay at 9 o'clock. Not so much, maybe at 10.30. But in just five verses, we will attempt to unpack just a fraction of the endless, limitless wisdom, knowledge, insight, and depth and wealth of content that is here. We will look at our introduction to our Lord Jesus Christ from Mark's gospel in four categories. Visit, vision, voice, victory. I've worked hard at that alliteration, so I hope you're grateful for that. Um, I think we need to pray. Let's, uh, Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we are here once again. Uh, begging that you would come, that you would help us, Father. We, as, as David prayed, I, it's abundantly aware to each of us that uh, we're all facing different circumstances, Lord. That some of us are perhaps facing issues of, of forgiveness, of bitterness. Uh, some of us are dealing with hardship and trial. Some of us are rejoicing and, and dealing with great blessings, and we are asking we are saying that we need your help in dealing with each of these things because we want to do them rightly we want to do we want to handle them as your people who've been called up and set apart and so father we turning to, we're turning to your word and we're looking at at Christ and we're asking for more of him we're we're asking that you would teach us more of Christ and that we would be putting on that coat of Christ on ourselves, So that as we go out, as we interact with people, as we are in times of fa- with family or uh, work experience, whatever it is, Lord, that, that you would help us see the light of Christ in all things. So we ask of you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The visit. Look at this opening line from verse 9. In those days, what a phrase! Even in those three words, it absolutely captures our attention, I think. Never in history have there ever been days like those days. Think of the earliest days where, where Adam walked in, in perfection. He was, he was happy, he was healthy, he was holy because he had not yet fallen. The enemy is, is waiting for the, the perfect time to, to strike. Think of the days of Noah, sailing triumphant over uh, the stormy seas, but it's a, it's a sad triumph. Because all around him the the world was being torn apart under the wrath of the holy God. And and the days after would look much the same as the days before. Then there were the days of Abraham packing up the camels and and leaving pagan Babylon behind for, for the promised land, for a new land. And everywhere his foot would step from the Nile to the Euphrates would be his. But he almost lost it in Egypt. And he almost lost it with Hagar. And he almost lost it with a Philistine king. Because Abraham had feet of clay. Then we think of the days of Moses who humbled Egypt to the dust and freed Israel. Israel bringing God's people out of bondage. But there was Moses' disobedience in striking the rock at Kedish. There was the disobedience of the people of God throughout their time in the wilderness. Then there were the days of David, crowned with with glory and with honor, ascended to the throne to to, to found a, a deathless dynasty. But that was before he met Bathsheba. And that was before he wrote his repentant, tear-stained psalms. In all of those days since Adam, we look in vain for a perfect man. One who would crush the head of the serpent and fulfill the proto-gospel that we read in Genesis chapter 3. But then we read these words In Mark's Gospel. In those days, Jesus. Now John the Baptizer preached repentance and and the appearing of the long-awaited Christ. In those days, the the fullness of time came and, and, and God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, And he grew up in obscurity until the days of his inauguration to Israel. And he came, Mark says, from Nazareth of Galilee. Now people didn't think very highly of Nazareth nor of Galilee. Galileans were typically recognized for their dialect, grammatical errors, mispronunciation of words, and much like our dear friends from the state of Mississippi. <laughs> just kidding, sort of. <laughs> I have a dear friend who's from Mississippi, and he ministers to a Ukrainian congregation in California, and I just look at him and I think, there's no way they understand anything you say. I, I just, it's baffling to me, and yet God has given him great favor over there, and I pray the Lord continue to bless him but then there 's this this town of of nazareth right' it 's a, a backwater town it was a dis, It was despised for its 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 lack of morals and irreligion. Jesus never seems to shrink away from that title Jesus of Nazareth and in time, Christians themselves were were called Nazarenes, a term of contempt, a, a, to stamp on them an association with a despised town and, and to make a link to a despised leader. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Right? Is this the same baptism that Jesus uh, tells his disciples to administer in Matthew chapter 28? Well, yes and no. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. Did Jesus need to repent of his past sins? No. But he does repent in terms of turning his back to sin. This, this repentance term, metanoia, means to turn away from. And so, in some sense, yes, Jesus turns his back to sin. Now, when Christians are baptized, it is a, it's a baptism of, of, of membership. It's a baptism of, of identity. I hope we are able to have some baptisms in this service in the, in the near future. We've been having those conversations with a few people. It's this welcome into the, into the community of, of believers and identifying with. It's different from John's baptism, which was a, which was a baptism of uh, being prepared. It's preparation. It's repentance. We saw that the last week or so. And it's different from the, the Holy Spirit baptism, which was the inward conversion and the, and the regenerating work of God in, in the person. A Christian gets baptized and we say, I want to put away sin in my life, but we fall back into sin. Jesus wants to identify with the people that he will save, and he turns his back on sin, but his is a sustained repentance. We repent, we put our faith in Jesus, and we get saved. And, and He repented, and He was faithful to save. He came from a despised town and a despised province to a despised river. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel, sneered leprous Naaman when Elisha tells him to wash himself in the Jordan River if he wanted to be healed. A despised town, a despised province, a despised river. We're getting more of a picture of the servant Uh, Imagery that is set before us in Jesus as we are introduced to Him in Mark's gospel, are we not? The visit. Now, that was just our first verse, so I hope you're ready for a very long sermon. (laughs) I could hear the awkwardness in that. Now we consider the vision and the voice that takes place here in Mark's gospel. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. For you Bible scholars, do you know where else that terminology comes in, in Mark's gospel, that, that image of, of being torn open? It's when the curtain is torn in two at Jesus' death. Some significance there. We'll get to that in five years when we get to those chapters. In, in Jesus' baptism, just as in believer's baptism, there is a Trinitarian work, Father, Son, and Spirit, The initiative of the Father, the vicarious work of the Son, and the glorifying, enabling power of the Spirit are all revealed in this act. The the heavens are opened, the Spirit appeared up, Christ comes from the watery grave, down comes the, the Spirit from above to rest on Him, And from then on, the the Lord Jesus, who had been always filled with the Spirit, was now anointed with the Spirit. There's so much symbolism in this. Think of the vividness of this picture that's being played out in front of us. Christ coming up out of the water, the Spirit coming down, Christ leaving uh, death. Uh, in the tomb in his wake, uh, up into a a heaven that opens up to to receive him, and and eventually he will sit on the right hand of the Father, and then the Spirit comes down to say, this is a new day. And the Spirit is still here, reproving, regenerating, restraining, and, and, and here he remains until Jesus comes again. Visit, vision, and now the voice. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. If this was being portrayed in a movie, this, this would be the scene where the, the, the movie reaches a crescendo and the, and, the, and the music hits its highest point and the voice of God speaks. Here's the thing, though. I think many of us are, are, are familiar with what God says at Jesus' baptism, and so in a sense, we expect it. But I was thinking, if if I was a total outsider and I'm reading this and I heard this, what would I be thinking? Here's all of this buildup. You know, we've got John and all of his preparation and the, the coming of the Messiah. There's this anticipation, the man that the whole world has been waiting for the advocate that Job wanted, the, the serpent crusher that Adam and Eve were promised, the one whom Abraham saw his day and rejoiced, the one whom Moses said would come and would be greater than him, the one who would be in the line of David, the one who would come through the Hebrew people but would bring the nations back under Yahweh. Yahweh. And he arrives obscurely on the scene. And there's all this powerful imagery of coming out of the water and the spirit descending and this line that God uses. This is the line that he uses to announce his son. This is the Messiah. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. I mean, if you read that, it can sound like this is my son. I love him. He's good. It it can feel like it's just flat. It, It needs something like what John says, you know, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Right? That feels more epic. Maybe God needed to consult a screenwriter for this. But if God is the one who's saying these words, then we know that he is not wasting any words. And they must have tremendous weight and significance to them. And this is where having a, a rich Old Testament knowledge helps us. Because what God the Father says to the Son comes from lines of the Old Testament. And so let's look at what they say and where they come from. Our first line, you are my son, this comes from Psalm 2. It's ascribed to David in the New Testament. It is where God announces his son will be king. Who is it? Uh, Is it David? Is it Solomon? No. It's someone else, someone who will rule the nations, who will stand against the Lord's enemies. And now God the Father says at the baptism, you are my son. This is a picture of kingship. Then we see the line, you are my beloved son, or my son whom I love. That phrase reminds us of Genesis 22, where Abraham is to sacrifice his son Isaac God says to Abraham, take your son Isaac, whom you love. The love from father to son in view here. And we know that before Abraham was able to sacrifice his son Isaac, God intervenes. He he spares the life of the boy. God's son is the beloved and will be sacrificed with no intervention, with no help. This term, beloved, signifies, I love him. I, I have set my love on you. It reminds us that Jesus' death on the cross was, was not a simple task for, for father or for son, it, it was extremely painful. It was costly for the father to, to place his, on his son the sin of all whom he would save. It's a suffering father and son. And the suffering of the Father and the Son is infinitely more intense than any other suffering in the world because of the character and the nature of their relationship, because of the holiness of God, because of the the tightness, tight unity of the Trinity. And if you think of the role Abraham is is playing in his account in Genesis 22, he is offering his son as a sacrifice, which was the role of the priest. This is a picture of priesthood. Then our last part of, of God's words to his son at his baptism with you I am well pleased. This comes from Isaiah 42. In the Suffering Servant Songs of Isaiah, God is speaking to his servant in Isaiah. He is saying, My servant will suffer righteous for the unrighteous. And this comes to us from Isaiah the prophet. That the servant will suffer like the prophets in the Old Testament. This is a picture of prophet. Do you see what this seemingly innocuous line from God is saying? It carries a punch with a weight far greater than we could ever imagine. It is infinitely deep and infinitely insightful to us. Far more insightful than than anyone standing there would have understood, including John himself. This is my son, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The one who fulfills all three offices to completion, to perfection. He is the voice of God. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the one who makes atoning sacrifice, and he is himself the sacrifice. He is all that you have been waiting for and he is all that you need. And yet he comes from a despised town in a despised province to a despised river. Paradox of all paradoxes. What is all of this saying to us? It's saying to us, Jesus is important. That's a massive understatement. (laughs) But it also says to us, you can live your life and face each day knowing there is a king who loves me, who has proven his sacrificial love for me, and therefore whatever I face... I know that my life is marked by someone who comb- combines complete power and complete compassion. Visit, vision, voice, and finally, victory. Verse 12. The the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, you can read the specifics of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But Mark does not give the details in his account. He blows past it, just making reference to it, right? He just glances past it. But even in that, he's making a point. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Ekbalo is the Greek term. It's cast out. It's extremely strong language. And it is the total opposite of what we would expect. The Spirit descends and the the Father speaks and the Spirit drives him to a hotel by the beach for a bit of relaxation. That's what we would expect. And the Spirit drives him to a restaurant for a fantastic meal because he's the Son. No, he drives the Son into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Here is the creator of the universe. The one who spoke the land and the sea into existence. The one who spoke the animals into existence. The one who created the angelic beings. And here he is in the wilderness, the cursed land. And why is it cursed? Because the first Adam came into a perfect world with no obstacles and he failed. But the Son of God, the Christ, is cast into the wilderness, into complete hostility with wild animals to help carry the imagery and with the same enemy who slithered up to Adam and deceived the first couple. And what does he do? He does what the first Adam should have done. He does what the first Adam could not do. He's with the, he's with the enemy for 40 days. It's representative of the 40 years that Israel is, is lost in the wilderness. And he resists the devil and his schemes. Where Adam is unfaithful, Christ is faithful. Where the people of God were unfaithful, Christ is faithful. And the most amazing part of all of this is that you and I, we are not left in the audience to just watch this drama unfold and, and, and have nothing to do with it. No, we, we are brought in we are included in this. We are included in his success. We see that he is committed to see his mission through in his baptism so that we can be recipients of this salvation plan that the Lord Jesus Christ is working out. And when Satan tempts Attempts to cause us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied To look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. The prophet, the priest, and the king whose inauguration was perfect shows us the one who we all need. Let us pray. Father, I think sometimes it can be easy for us to read accounts throughout your word and and just skim the surface and we miss the depth and the wealth of, of your word that is there for us. And so, Lord, we ask that this would not be the case of us, that we would spend time diving deep into this, understanding the weight of all the things that have taken place throughout your word because this is a message to us. It is a reminder of who you are and who we are and what you've brought us into. Father, forbid that we would ever take this for granted. Help us see the light of Christ with newness, with new eyes, with new appreciation as we consider our vocation, as we consider our family, as we consider all things set before us. For just as John was strange and apart from this world, we too can live in this world with our hearts set on Christ, with our eyes set on heaven and minister to this world that is broken and in need. And we could do that because Christ has come, and he has given us his gospel. So, Father, help us to meditate on these things as we consider relationships, as we consider all things set before us, opportunities, obstacles, challenges. Help us see things with the eyes of Christ,